everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. We can start off with, what are you drinking, Megan? I have green tea with, like, essence of strawberry or something. It's very tasty. I've been enjoying it. Mm. What do you have? This is good old-fashioned chamomile. Ah, lovely. I haven't built up my tea store yet. It It's, it's coming along. <laughs> you started with one of your favorites, though, which is very sensible. Exactly. I have green tea, I have chamomile, and I have Earl Grey. Twinings! Ooh. Earl Grey. Ooh, fancy. Well, that's our teas. So today we are going through uh, the first half of Helen of Troy, a novel by Margaret George. It is, what, four times probably longer than anything else we've read. It's a very large book and starts with Helen being six-ish and at the halfway point where we've just got to, she's in her mid-twenties and she's just got to Troy with um, Paris. And this is actually the second take of recording this because about 15 minutes ago when we first started, Lexi was giving me her impressions because as we all know, Lexi listens to the audiobook, I read the paperback. And apparently the audiobook has some significant differences to the book that I read. So we're just gonna plow ahead and see what happens and kind of do a compare and contrast thing. Yeah, so this is going to be a fun adventure for literally all of us because we have no idea what's going on here or why these books are different, but they are. Lexi, would you give us your thoughts on the first half of the audiobook that you Yeah, had? so the audiobook I had, which I don't, and I don't know how different the entire beginning is from the copy you read, but basically it kind of starts off with Helen as a literal child. And we'd been asking and begging for something with, you know, the queen telling her own narrative of her own story. Um, so the first thing I want to point out is Margaret George did a bunch of research into ancient Mycenae because the detail of like the rich details and descriptions of like this place that she was like, it was, it was amazing. Anyway, that was just a cursory side thing, but basically. I know I, I, I picked up on that as well. And in the, like the, either the I think the preface of the book she she goes out of her way to thank like museum curators and historians that she talked to and, and their research that she read so it's it's a very well researched yeah and I think it helped for me set the stage because so much of her story is told without it being in her perspective and so then there's this like mystique around her where she's not quite seen as like a normal human which I always think is so wrong like no she's she's supposed to be like a very human person so she would have normal human reactions and I want to see that and so setting it up in a very realistic sense helped like demystify that anyway 
yeah, so it starts with her as a child. And in my version, at least, she has twin brothers, Castor and Pollux, that she grows up with. Yeah, we, I think we're, the beginning seems to be the same. Starts as a kid, she's got the twin brothers, and then Lytemnestra. Okay, perfect. And so then her, so we're, we learn that Helen is like actually the product of Zeus and then the Queen of Sparta. So um, again, half goddess. But either way, they talk about her beauty and her parents thought that her beauty would be like destructive to those around her. So they insist that she wear a veil. And I found it really interesting because Margaret George um, extends this veil to her audience because she doesn't describe what Helen looks like ever. We just, we get like a, a sense of, oh, she has golden curls, golden hair, whatever. But that's kind of it. And then we're like, oh, okay. Well, beyond this reference to her golden hair, we have nothing. And so from her perspective, it's nice because we get this idea that where we can sort of see the decisions where she has to keep her personality hidden. It's subdued. It's, you know, she doesn't want it to become a provocation because she, you know, might have opinions or, or whatever. But then it makes her into like an observer of her own life where de facto we are an observer of her because she's not really a doer and she doesn't do things. And, and like, yeah, it's weird. Um, but then I also couldn't help but think, I thought I stumbled on the wrong thing and was l listening to like a copy of the mini series that we watched, Helen of Troy, because it then goes into her abduction by Theseus, King of Athens, and his like buddy, because basically their plot was they, they wanted to kidnap her and raise her so that eventually, when she was of age, one of them could have sex with her. Um, so I was like, okay, this sounds exactly like the miniseries, except the miniseries turned around and was like, psych, she wanted to sleep with him, and then he was like, you're a child, and one day, you will have sex, and someone will love you, but it's not me. And I was like, I don't understand. So this version seemed a bit more on the, okay, we're actually going to raise her to have sex with her, and like okay whatever um but then she's rescued by her brother and it doesn't happen so like all's well that ends well i guess but then again like the miniseries her parents are like oh my god this happened we need to marry her off because she could this could happen again and then they like get all the men together and then they choose a audibly sounding older Menelaus, they're like, oh yes, we've chosen you because of your wisdom and your advanced age and you're not some silly child, which apparently she was. <laughs> not sure, unclear. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, basically she's uh, married off. And then I got like a bit of a time jump to where then she's in her early 20s. And I guess the biggest difference we just found out was that um, in my version, Helen has four children um, with Menelaus. I mean, Hermione's the oldest because she's the most important. She was going to become queen. Um, but yeah, she has three siblings. And she's here unhappy, resigned to like a loveless marriage. And she's like sad and unhappy. And Menelaus is fine and he's happy, ha ha ha. But he and Agamemnon are like bemoaning this peace that they have and they're like we want adventure we want war we want things because it's too boring here um and and um there was like there was this great 
quoted line that I remember that was something about like they were not content with cattle raids and minor skirmishes. They longed for something more. <clears throat> and so to sort of round out my sort of synopsis of what happened in my version of the first half, um, basically Paris comes and arrives with the promise that, uh, you know, Aphrodite has promised him the love of the most beautiful woman um, in the world after the, the contest. Um, and in this version, uh, Paris is like a 16 year old or something love struck teenager. He was like, what, six or seven or eight years younger. I forgot it said, but he was something of that nature younger. And then you get this really funny, cute scene where on the first night of the visit, they kiss at the sacred shrine um, of like Helen's pet snake. And as a snake lover, I was like, she has a pet snake. Was it a ball python? Because I really want one of those. So I got like really distracted. My mind went off on tangents. And then I just started imagining like, like women in early 20s with snake. And it was like beautiful. I was like, does she walk around with the snake coiled around her arm? Because it's like, you know, doing the thing and then she can just do things normally and are people scared? Okay, that was a tangent. But anyway, loved that. But then yeah, they basically like they're at this dinner and then he writes, Paris loves Helen in wine on the table. And she's kind of like, LOL, this dude is young and excited and passionate. And it's completely different from the middle-aged husband that is not doing these things. So she's all like, ooh, this is amazing. Um, and then there's like this great description of how Aphrodite's magic uh, like is working so well because then at one point Paris is like doubting whether this affair is like actually a good idea. And then from this version, it seems as if Helen actually talks Paris into running away with her back to Troy. Um, and then he was like, okay. And then she was like, you know what she, well, what's also a good idea? Let's take some of Menelaus' stores of gold. Oh, but we need to leave Hermione in Sparta because she was like, I still care about Sparta. LOL, LOL. I was like, this is the most comical thing I've read. Um, but she was like, yeah, I can't leave Sparta bereft of a queen. And so she was like, it's my duty to leave him a queen. So we're going to leave. Hermione behind. Bye bye. And then it doesn't really mention anything about her other children, other than they're just not there. Which I was like, LOL. The award for shittiest parent to four needy children goes to ding, 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 Helen. Um, yeah. So basically, Menelaus, of course, is like enraged, and you stole my wife, and blah blah blah. So then they, um, basically, then it resumes the plot of uh, the Iliad that we all know and love so well where uh, he goes to Agamemnon and they collect a thousand trip strong army. Um, so yeah, but basically Helen arrives in Troy and then they've been there for a few weeks and then I stopped reading because that was sort of the halfway point, but it seemed like things were taking off and the Greeks were, um, you know, like enraged and pretty sure they were gonna come get her and, you know, start a war because, they made a big deal about her husband and his brother basically warmongering, being like, where is our war? I'm tired of cattle skirmishes. So that was my book. I'm very interested to see if what your book was like and how that differentiates. Yeah, so some definite interesting differences going on here. Um, 
we don't get the Theseus episode in the paperback at all. And when you first, the first time we recorded this and you mentioned, I was like, did I, did I skip a chapter? I sat down and read the whole half in like one go. I don't think I skipped a chapter, but maybe I did. And I'm just leafing back through my copy, desperately trying to find it. It just doesn't happen in the paperback, um, even a little bit. Theseus just, no. Although after we published the Helen of Troy miniseries episode, someone did comment and say that actually the Theseus thing is canon. Um, it's not mentioned in the Iliad, but it is canon for Helen. So that was interesting. And I thank you, um, listener, I can't remember your name, but thank you for posting that. That was, that's cool to know. So we don't get the Theseus thing. And my Helen meets Menelaus for the first time when Creusa chooses Agamemnon as her husband. And they have this nice, like little moment of being together. And it, it's like, it's a nice foreshadowing. He seems like a nice chill dude. And she's like, okay yeah this is this is nice and then we skip forward a bit it's, it's helen's turn to get married and like 40 suitors descend on sparta and her parents have put out this rumor that she is the most beautiful woman in the whole world which she hates but does seem to be at least the most beautiful woman in the whole of greece because you know she's the daughter of of zeus so all of these men appear to to marry her and or to try and marry her and she is, her father tells her that she is allowed to choose which husband she wants. So she um, goes through them all and, and Menelaus doesn't show up. He sends Agamemnon, which again is canon. And Helen's response is, well, so everyone has to bring a gift or do a feat or something. And Menelaus is going to do something in the future for her. And she's like, no, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work for me. That's not fair on everyone else. Um, he should run from here to here before the end of the my my choosing so and bless him he ends up running from i can't remember where he was but all the way to sparta and makes it and like doesn't sleep he just keeps going and so they end up getting married and she's happy she seems like she's really happy with her choice and he's roughly the same age as she is in this and they like each other. She feels like she's marrying a friend. But then on the wedding night, there's zero spark, zero interest. And it's said in the book that it's because Aphrodite is punishing punishing her for something her father did. It's not fully explained and never really fully fleshed out, but that continues the tone of their marriage. They're friends. They get along great. They are decent co-parents, it looks like. But she has zero sexual interest in him, like at all, period. And she's kind of resigned herself to that and you know it's not great but it's not awful and she has this lovely life and someone does try to poison her at one point which was a little bit of a weird tangent did you get the poisoning episode yes i i seem yeah. to yeah i i definitely like listen to it um yeah yeah so someone someone tries to poison her and it's the the mother of someone of a, a girl that she beat in a like maidenhood foot race and it was yeah odd and unexpected and there's also this spy wandering around i can't remember where he's from originally but he comes to be in in the service of menelaus as king of sparta and he's a, a, an interesting character he helps helen he works out who's poisoning her and tells her like where to go to get better and then takes her to his hometown to gather shellfish and at that point because that seemed like a very random excursion but at that point helen wanders off into a cave and finds aphrodite Ta-da! And Aphrodite um, doesn't apologize, but 
like blesses Helen essentially so that she will have sexual desire and love and affection for someone and Helen's like great I'm going to actually want to have sex with my husband and she goes home and she doesn't want to have sex with her husband at all even a little bit um so that was very sad but then Paris arrives and yes well we all know what happens then in my version Paris again is is significantly younger than Helen and he does the writing on the table thing but like she's completely besotted with him by this point because of Aphrodite, purportedly, um, we don't get any hint of the the contest. We have no idea that that's happened. Paris seemingly has no idea that Aphrodite has anything to do with what's going on. They, He and Aeneas have come to Sparta, come to Greece to try and find his aunt, Priam's uh, sister, who was stolen by the Greeks and is a queen and has had kids and by all accounts, is very happy and doesn't want to go home. Priam doesn't believe that, so he sent his son and nephew to try and find out what the hell's going on. And the backdrop to this is sounds very similar to yours. Agamemnon is generally bored, generally displeased, would very much like to go and wage war somewhere. Menelaus is not. He's seemingly very content being king of Sparta and at a couple of points has kind of reined his brother back in. Agamemnon tried earlier in the book to um, persuade a bunch of other kings to go after Sparta because they were, um, he like preemptively, he thought the Trojans, he didn't try and convince kings to go after Sparta. He tried to convince kings to go after Troy because he thought that the Trojans were going to come and, and try and steal back Priam's sister. And Menelaus and Helen like, nah, let's not do that. She's happy where she is. Let's just, let's leave her be. Let's not have a war with this great and powerful kingdom. And then of course, um, Paris and Aeneas come and that just is a whole thing. And it was, it was a little odd reading it, honestly. Um, because up until that point, Helen has been very content with her life. She loves her family. She gets to stay in the castle with her husband and her daughter and her parents. And she sees her sister and her brothers really regularly. And like, she's happy. It's a good life. She loves her daughter dearly. And then Paris shows up and suddenly everything else is not interesting enough or not good enough. And she says, I like, because Aphrodite essentially says, if, if you let him leave, I'm, I'm leaving you. And she kind of withdraws her blessing and Helen says that the light goes out from the world and all color drains she's like no 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 please don't do that I can't do that so yeah that was interesting we also find out right before Helen leaves that Meleus is having an affair with a slave girl who is pregnant um and Helen finds this by accidentally stumbling upon them and she kind of walks into the Menelaus bedroom as they're saying their goodbyes and Menelaus does the the typical court husband thing of oh she means nothing to me thereby alienating his wife and his girlfriend in one fell swoop it doesn't do him an awful lot of good so then Helen is like have a safe trip bye and leaves and then he he leaves to go to his father's funeral um in this one, the leaving seems to be very mutual. There isn't a lot of persuasion. The Hermione thing, though, that was really interesting listening to you talk about that because in my version, Helen desperately wants Hermione to come with them, desperately wants her to go. And Paris says, no, she's a child. She doesn't know what she wants. And, and Helen says, well, we should ask her. And he says, she's nine. You can't ask her to make a decision. Of course she's going to go with you. You're her mother. You can't ask her to make that decision. 
Um, and Helen ends up doing it anyway. She goes right before they leave. She goes to Hermione's bedroom and wakes her up and says, I, I, like, I'm going on an adventure with Paris to see his city, to meet his parents. You should come with me. And Hermione's like, no, no, I, I'm going to stay here. She has pet tortoises. I'm going to stay with my tortoises. And Helen tries several times to convince her you should let's go. Come on, let's go. And Hermione says, no, I, I don't, I don't want to go on, on your adventure. I, I'll see you in the morning and, and like falls asleep again. And Helen is very, very sad, but leaves. So that was, yes, interesting difference. And then there's quite a lot of description of their journey to Troy on the boat. They get attacked by pirates. They land on an island where Aphrodite first came to, like, came to land and they find, um, the spy from Sparta, who had been previously quite a major character, he's on this island because he thought she'd probably go there. And he's brought this old woman with him who we've never met before, but she's apparently a prophetess and she brings the snake with her. And that's that's all great and shiny. And then they keep going to Troy and they get married in on the beach before they get into the city and they yeah, get to the city. And um, Paris's parents are super pissed like super duper pissed how did they react to her in in your audition they're very upset she's like 20s he's like 16 and she had four children in my version and they were like you like stole another like older man's wife and they were like what the fuck yeah no they were they were not happy they they were angry and priam was very angry because they'd already been a greek envoy to Troy to say, your son has stolen the queen of Sparta. And he said, no, he would never do such a thing. Don't be ridiculous. She's not here and sent them on their way. So now he's been made to be a liar. And Hecuba is just generally pissed. I get the, the feeling that she's just generally a very, a woman used to getting her own way and having her son show up with this random woman who was going to cause an awful lot of chaos did not sit terribly well with her. Who was older and had baggage, a husband and children, and yeah. the husband's brother was like a major dickweed yeah. opponent of Troy. So they were like, mm, all these reasons mean no. Why, why, why did you do this? Yeah, so um, it sounds like we ended it at roughly the same place in our respective mm -hmm divergent stories i don't know why they're so divergent like oh no me neither it's bizarre but we, we've had like greek mercenaries or greek merchants in troy talking about how agamemnon's gathering an army and helen's like oh yeah by the way when i got married my father made all the suitors swear an oath that if one of them ever like if i was ever stolen they'd all band together and help my husband maybe i should have mentioned that earlier and Priam's like, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. No one's going to come. Paris says, oh, no one's going to come this far for, for just a woman. It's okay. He's never going to mount this army. And surprise, surprise. Yes, he does. Yeah, because, of course, no one's going to come for the most beautiful woman in the world that we, the audience, aren't, aren't even, like, um, privy to, to see. Mm-hmm. And, and what you said about the veil was really interesting. And I hadn't quite picked up on it, but that's exactly what happens you never get a description of her. There are a couple of points where like she looks in a pool of water or she catches a glimpse of herself in a mirror and you get like her eyes are, are this color and her hair is this color, but I have like, I have no idea what she looks like. But did you, does your version have the Trojans being super beautiful as a race of people? I don't remember that. Because I... it's, it's 
emphasized really weirdly in the version I'm reading. And it seems like that she's not, it seems like she's super beautiful for a Greek woman, but average for a Trojan woman. So no one is going around staring at her in Troy because she just looks like a person. That would have been a detail that probably I just was like, okay, whatever. Also, it's it's a bit hard because mm. it's like, I focus on the big things like the veil and I'm just like, yeah, oh, no one yeah. knows what she looks like. And so you can claim that she's the most beautiful woman in the world. You can claim anything. All we know is she has golden curls yeah. and she has, you know, whatever. Like You said at the beginning, and we've both said this, that we've been waiting for Helen to tell her own story and to, to actually be an agent in her own life. How do you think that's going so far? Because this is a whole book narrated by Helen about herself. What are your thoughts? I think a lot of them, well, a lot of my thoughts are also wrapped into the version I'm reading uh, as well, which, I mean, again, it sounds like they're, they're pretty much the same for a lot of the stuff. There's just certain <laughs> major details that are... <laughs> major plot points that just don't exist. At some level, I get that, like, maybe Wires would leave out the whole she was kidnapped by Theseus, because it is, like, background. It sets the stage. And so I guess it makes sense that it wouldn't be in there. The four children thing, that's where I just, I'm like, I don't... It's, it is, it's, it's very odd, because for those listening, if you go on Amazon, like, it's listed as the same book. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, the audiobook and the paperback book are the same story. And apparently they are just not so, yeah, no idea what's going on there. Why they, like, because normally for an audiobook, you would cut things rather than add things back in. So, yeah, very confusing. I mean, and it could be that I found some weird file that was mislabeled and they thought it was Margaret George. And who knows who puts these things together? I don't know. Either way. So, yeah, a lot of my thoughts are wrapped up into the version I'm reading. But, um, yeah, it just seems like because they brought in the backstory of, she was kidnapped and then she was raised just to be a bot for them to have sex with like and then her parents were freaked out about this episode and traumatized because they're they had to send her brother to go get it and then he like one of them was killed or whatever so it's this whole thing where it just seems like she's not a doer in her own story she's narrating it, to me, it just seems like she's narrating what happens to her. Like, she's watching life go by. And, you know, it'd be this odd thing. If I were to sit here and narrate from my life, oh, yes, and I went to work today, and then I had to do this, and I this happened to me, and this was told to me. Like, you know, it'd be like if I was narrating my own story from, like, a weird perspective where it didn't seem like it's, it's, it's all being told without any, like, actionable... And I made the conscious decision to do this. So it's, you know, it, it was, it's very much, my parents were worried, so they made me wear this veil, not, I'm so pissed I have to wear this veil because my parents feel this, but I don't feel this. Um, so I just feel like it's very much observatory. And, and But this is kind of like what I felt for the other Helens, which is, She's like an observer of her own life. It like happens around her. And maybe that's because the gods have so influenced her life that it happens around her. And then because she's the daughter of a god and, and, and because she's supposed to be super beautiful, like things naturally happen to her because of this. But I still don't think that that's, 
it's not fair, it's not right. I'm just like, just because you're super beautiful, I could look like freaking, I don't know, Scarlett Johansson, you know, and I could be like, yeah, I could have the world objectify me because I'm super beautiful and I'm rich and famous. But she, if I were to look like that, I would still have agency over my life. I would still be making decisions. And the real ScarJo is making decisions about her own life and taking control of the narrative. So I'm like, I don't know if it's because it's a modern perspective, but I'm just like, why isn't ancient Helen doing this? I just feel like she just. In your version, does she force her parents to tell her about her parenting? Like about Zeus's dad? I don't remember her doing so, but again, I could have missed it, but I don't, I, I don't remember hearing that. She had a couple of points of, of agency in the paperback relatively early on. She sneaks out of the castle with Creusa. She's not, she's not allowed out. Like she's kept under lock and key all the time. She doesn't know why. So she sneaks out and they go and somehow find a pond or a river or something. And there are these swans there. And one of them is Zeus. Of course it's Zeus. And Creusa like starts throwing stones at the swans. Bad idea. Don't do that. Swans are aggressive as fuck. And Zeus comes and attacks her as a swan, but comes and attacks her and, um, Helen jumps on on the swan's back and like pulls it off and the swan turns and looks at her and like gives her a little kiss on the cheek with his beak and she was like that was really weird and then some townspeople yell things at her that are a little weird and then they're walking back through the through the city to get to the castle and her like, she doesn't have a veil on and she doesn't have her hood up and they see who she is and they're like oh, it's helen and start like yelling about how she must be deformed because she must have a beak because of the the swan thing and she's hiding behind creusa and she like pushes her aside and stands up and says i am helen and she obviously doesn't have a beak she's like 11 maybe 12 and the upshot of it is when they get back to the castle they're punished for like escaping, but she essentially forces her mum, forces her mother to tell her like what the hell is going on. And that was really interesting because up until that point, it had been very much Helen kind of just going along with the narrative of, oh, I can't leave the castle. Oh, I'm not allowed to take my veil off. Oh, blah, 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 blah. So that was interesting. The other bit for me was trying to persuade Hermione to leave with her which apparently is definitely a, a major discrepancy between the two editions, volumes, who the hell knows what's going on there. But a lot of it, you're right, she just is floating through life. And there are points where she asks her dad to make Menelaus co-regent because he's really like bored and sad. And her dad ends up just abdicating and making Menelaus king of Sparta. Like that, that's, that's agency, that's good, well done, Helen. But like day-to-day -day life seems just like floating through it, which I, you know, probably historically somewhat accurate. It's not like she can go and have diplomatic banquets with people on her own, off her own decision. But I don't like, I struggled through the whole first half of the book to really feel some kind of sympathy or connection for her because she's meant to be a sympathetic character. She's shut up in this castle and then she's married to someone and she's excited, but then the marriage is not what she had hoped. And then she like sees this like beautiful Spartan and falls instantly in love. And at that point of the story, I just was like, what? No, no, no. Because there is, for me, and we've talked about this for, before, it's the star-crossed lovers shit. 
and it's annoying and irritating. And I was really hoping for something more substantial here, especially because you've got Helen narrating. Just something other than, oh, it was Aphrodite. Like, no, come on, please. Let's, let's have something, some kind of anything apart from, oh, he makes me feel warm and fuzzy and my husband doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. Because until then, she's perfectly fine with her life. It's not perfect, but she has a nice husband. She has parents. She has her daughter. Life is good. And then suddenly it's not good enough and she has to leave. And it was very, that whole thing, the whole reasoning behind her leaving felt very, very unconvincing for me. And it was really frustrating. And I don't know if it's the same in your, in your audiobook, but you do get the gods popping in. Apart from Zeus doing his swan thing, you get at one point Persephone speaking to Helen during a ritual. Then you get Aphrodite speaking to her in this cave and, and at various other points. But they're, they're plot devices. They're not, they're, they are purely there as plot devices. Helen especially, and not Helen, Aphrodite especially. And it feels very, very, very unconvincing. And we don't know about the contest. We don't know why Aphrodite is doing this apart from a, a fragment of, oh, maybe she's punishing my dad for something he did. We don't know what he did. And, oh, I forgot to pay, pray to Aphrodite on my wedding night and she's capricious. Yeah, sure, she's capricious, but we need like something more, something more, please, for the love of God. We didn't get it and I'm. it was frustrating. But we knew the gods, like, like there's only so much that she could do because it's, to me, since it's, she struck me as somebody with not a lot of agency and someone who does let life pass her, not even life happen to her. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I was optimistically like, okay, there's got to be something more. Like, what about Paris really made you want him? Um, but at the same time, it doesn't surprise me that, like, if you know uh, now, okay, if you're not familiar with the Iliad and, and the background, okay, then you wouldn't know. But but as historians, uh, you know, as a classicist, I, I do know the background. And I do know if you have a situation where, like, the only reason she's going with this person is because she was promised in a godly contest, and then you go, and then you make the logical jump from, okay, but she's not free, so then how do you make her go, and how do they start a war? Like, there's, I, I think I've come to terms, there's never gonna be, like, an actual sane, logical reason that if you have someone, depending on which account you read, and it's not just for this Margaret George, it's for all the accounts we've read, some, they have her, like, hating her life, loveless Meredith Menelaus, he's too old, and she's just, like, doing her duty, and she's miserable, and then some, no, she's, like, okay with her life, she's not unhappy, like, he, he provides for her, she has children, she's queen, um, so both versions of that, um, and then just knowing, like, Greek conventions, even if she wasn't a loveless, unhappy marriage, like, she would know her duty, and duty was a big thing, and you don't just easily run away or give that up in ancient Greek, like that's just not a thing so knowing that with my background i'm like there, there there should there can't really be a sane rational reason she goes like it has to be nothing more than they were bound by such an intense passion 
that like it was a completely created artificial passion but like if it's subject to the whim of a god it doesn't have to make sense it's it's the god's will and it shall be done and it makes people do crazy things because why like you you look at other instances in mythology like why would heracles kill his family that he loves very much in a fit of rage uh, other than it's the will of hera and it just happens you know so it's i was hoping there would be some sort of i don't like like i guess i was looking for like if helen was here saying like i feel this really strong urge toward him and i don't know why and i'm trying to fight it but it's like it's too strong because i feel like i'm not in control of my feelings or reactions and i would like to stop but i can't like for me that would have made it more compelling like yes this is a very sympathetic tragic character who she clearly has like like the gods in the world didn't ask her what she wanted they're just like making life happen to her in a very unfair way so i think i've discovered after doing all these different adaptations I would find her much more convincing and compelling if it wasn't oh and i'm in love and he's hot and now i i need him because the world has lost its luster if it if it was like a yes he's hot and the world has lost his luster but i don't understand why the world has lost its luster because i'm fine i'm happy this must be some ulterior thing that is outside of my control i think i would have found her much more sympathetic yeah i i, I think you're right and i I think that's what I was trying to get at when I was saying that the gods are just plot devices. If they were more involved generally in the story rather than just kind of popping in when you needed something moving forward, I think that would have made it feel like there was more, there was more tension going on or, or just more, more substance, more something. I actually kind of like that they pop it because one, it shows kind of that these are people who don't give a shit about humans. They're going to just do what they want to do because they're gods and they can and like people are their playground. So if they want to just like pop in and ruin someone's Sunday, they can on a whim and then make it very clear that they have all this power and that humans really are subject to their whims and they can't fight the will of the gods. Uh, so to me, it makes it stronger that they do pop in and out because to me, if then they combined that with the sort of confused Helen of like, you know, my limbs are moving, but I'm not doing it. I like, I am walking toward this ship, but my will says, no, don't do it. But my limbs are just moving without me. And it's the God's influence. Like that tracks for me. Like for me, that would track. I just don't like how they mix in. They pop in and out. And then you have her being like, and I must go because I just, I'm, I'm going, you know, mm, this seems fun. It's, it, you know, like, I just, I hate how they're like, assigning this to her where she's like it's like a sport it's fun i'm gonna do it because i feel like it and one of the one of the things that came up aphrodite in in my version maybe in yours aphrodite tells her you will see hermione again but she will be older than you are now i i feel like that was trying to add in like releasing helen to go because she knows she'll see her daughter again but at the same time that means you're coming back to Sparta ultimately. And there's no, and I, I don't know if it's just because I know the story, I know what happens, I know how many people die, but surely you, you maybe stop and think, why am I coming back if I have left and am married to this other person? Like, am I coming back as a slave? Am I coming back 
because my second husband dies and I want to come back to my family? Like what what's going on here? I mean, I can I can see that definitely from from where you're coming from. At the same time, I guess my brain didn't go that my brain went to like, if you're told you're going to see her again, it sounds like this could it could be an aspirational. So she must be coming to join me in Troy eventually. Or it could be like a maybe she marries a wonderful Greek man and they visit Troy as a trade envoy or, or something. So I guess for me, like it does give her like a reason a release like like to be able to go to troy because she doesn't know the context so she could be like oh yeah i could go to troy and then my daughter will come join me later um either she'll come as a trade envoy by marriage or maybe she'll just like decide when she grows up oh i made a choice and i want to come be with my mom so yeah that's i guess where my mind went and like i i see where it sort of gives her the opportunity to go but see that just feeds into the I'm a star-crossed lover, and my one thing, and now I have a reason to go, ha, 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 yay, I'm going to see her again, great, bye. You know, I think, again, if she was like, I don't want to leave. Oh, I get a, told that I might see my daughter again? Yeah, but in what context? I don't know. Like, I, you know, I, I feel like a more discerning Helen who was happy with her life uh, would be more like, oh, I'll see her again. But what do you mean I'll see her again and like when I'm older like I just I would have questions if I was just told I will see my child when she's older than I am now I would be like well then I miss all of her childhood so no I don't want to go because I love my daughter um and then in my version she has the three other kids which didn't I mean they were like mentioned because they weren't important because they're not going to be queen but um what about them you know like she wasn't told she's going to see those children. Um, so even if she was told that she was going to see Hermione, then if you had a discerning Helen who was like, uh, what the fuck, you know, she could be like, okay, I'll see one, but what about my other three? Uh, you know, like, I feel like any mother's reaction to being told you'll see one child, your eldest, when they're older than you are now, um, and then nothing like the other, I mean, you're a mom, right? If, if some random woman was like, okay, you'll see your eldest when they're older than you are now. Um, and then nothing about your other three children. What would your reaction be? No. <laughs> Thank you. I will stay right here. Yeah. So like, even if they're not destined to be queen of where you're leaving, you still love those other children. And I don't think you really want to miss their life, childhood. No such a, a big deal is made up of how close she is with Hermione as well in in the rest of the book like what where why are you yeah and she says how much she wants her to go with them and how much she's going to miss her and like I I know that you have to go because I know it's the plot I know it's Aphrodite but like don't go yeah this this Helen was not it doesn't it doesn't do it because it doesn't track the way I would want yeah to. yeah and i think it might just be like an unavoidable thing that okay like oh i have to work with the original source material so i guess i just like this is one thing i can't change well the thing is the thing is if we're doing that the troy fall of a city i think did it much much better because you have a helen who is clearly unhappy hermione is much closer to her father than her mother they don't they, they just don't get on and the whole her leaving is very much painted as 
my choice. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be here anymore. I see a life that is better. I'm going. It was a stupid choice. It made sense. It did. It felt so much more mm -hmm. real than what we get in this book. But then it also only goes to one side of the narrative, which is she clearly was coming from the I'm miserable part where then she was like, I want to leave. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, what if Fall of a City had gone with the I'm happy with my life and I love my husband and I don't yeah. want to leave my daughter because even if she is closer to my husband, I still love my daughter. Like, it works in Fall of a City because they follow the certain narrative that she's miserable and so then they do a good job in like, justifying why she would leave but we have nothing that would counter that narrative and we know there's got to be more than just one narrative like 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 anything there has to be another side and the other side would have been i'm happy i'm happy i don't want to leave and so it's just disappointing i think to see that this would have been this could have been the final finally the 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 one adaptation work that we saw that spent time being like i'm actually happy with my life i'm not in a loveless marriage i i don't want to leave and i am subject to the whims and wishes of a god which is super unfair and this is why my life was turned upside down and i didn't want to start a war and i understand everyone's but i genuinely have no choice right and it's like the everyone's blaming me because she's always blamed for the war she's blamed for everything and I mean, it's kind of fun to pile on and blame her for stuff. But it, at the end of the day, she's supposed to be sympathetic. You're supposed to feel bad that, no, she probably didn't want thousands of people to get killed because she did, had to do this stupid thing. It's funny how these are things I never really thought into before we started doing this. But, like, after reading how and watching dozens of it adaptations of the same material i'm finally seeing the nuance i'm finally discovering i couldn't have explained to you before we did this like why i didn't like helen or what it is i wanted to see from her and i couldn't describe to you what would have actually saved her and made her really sympathetic and maybe me like her um but after all these adaptations i'm kind of proud because i can say i can diagnose exactly what i don't like I can diagnose exactly what I would have liked to see. And I'm sitting here now after this latest adaptation and I can tell you exactly if they did X, Y, and Z with her, I actually really would like her as a character and I would feel bad for her. And I would be able to come from a place of, I have zero blame for her at all. Like this was literally the gods forced her and she didn't want to and she resisted. Um, so I'm like proud of that. I don't know, like, has this changed how you feel about her at all? It's definitely, um, the experience has definitely given me a lot more nuance, I think, for the majority of characters. Agamemnon, I still just straight no. up, no thanks. None of that. None of that. Um, but it's seeing how different writers and directors have taken the same material has been really interesting. It's given a great deal of nuance to things that I hadn't considered before. And like you, I've always had issues with Helen and Paris. We we said it right at the beginning of the very first episode, like these characters trouble me and it's unfair because actually while what they do is deeply irresponsible and destructive, when you get right down to it, there isn't a lot of choice and agency, there isn't a lot of agency in the core points, the core points of, of the Iliad because it's all ordained 
by the gods who don't give a flying fuck about human agency. So you can have a Helen or you could potentially have a Helen who is strong and independent. And we see, I think we see flashes of it, or at least I saw flashes of it in this story. You see her like going out and running the maiden's race and insisting that her sister take her outside the walls and choosing her own husband. Like there are, there are flashes of real independence there. And I think she could be written as a very strong, very sympathetic, happy character who is living the life that yes duty demands of her but also making the best of it and finding joy in what she has regardless of whether she desperately wants to jump menelaus bones or not because really for the ancient world and for a lot of the modern world that's not massively important if you look at like even probably 50 years ago can you coexist with your spouse and enjoy their company much more important than whether or not you want to rip their clothes off and that's in this that's what it felt like was being juxtaposed we have the solid partnership the friendship the support of the marriage that helen has with menelaus and then you just have a pretty dude and she jumps from one to the other and we know it's because of aphrodite but it's not made like she, she truly doesn't struggle with it. And I think the Menelaus affair maybe was added in to give a reason as to why she's not struggling, but because such a thing is made early on in their relationship of him being this friend for her. And yeah, they kind of grow apart and drift, but he's a nice solid guy. And I, I feel like the affair was kind of used to give a moral excuse for her to to wander off. I don't think the affair was necessary. I don't think it really added anything. I think instead what you needed was more Aphrodite and Helen actually trying to fight back. That would have made it a much more interesting character. I feel like we see that after every adaptation where we're like, wow, why isn't yeah. Helen fighting back? And like, okay, the other ones, it feels like, well, it wasn't directly we don't know what's going on in her head so i think we were more willing to give it a pass because we we're like well we don't really know we just we hear of it from other people because all the other adaptations really weren't from her perspective um this is the first thing the first time I, like she would she has the space we have the space it's a massive book we have the space and she has the time to delve into like helen's real psyche and to me it's just disappointing that we don't like Ah. A lot of it seems very surface level. Yeah. And I'm like, I get it. I guess like, okay, she wants to like get through and tell the whole story. But I'm also like, I would be happy with something twice as long as even this one if I really got into her brain because I'm more interested in the content. And I know that not everyone's like that. I think, you know, in this age of like popular revivals and retellings, people are just kind of like, like, oh, new perspective from different person, but like same story. And I get that. Um, so maybe I'm just being nitpicky as a classicist who I'm like, no, give me depth, give me like a tome all on Helen's personality and I'll piece it together in, in the larger framework of the story. Like, okay, that's probably unnecessary for like the normal person. But I mean, 
like there's nothing even for academics on that you know like usually people's excuse is always well there's popular writing where you need a bigger audience and then if you want a big tome on Helen Psyche fine go into like academic circles and I'm like okay that's reasonable except there's not a big academic tome on Helen Psyche I mean I'm hoping that there's someone out there writing like a dissertation right now on the lack of agency for Helen but I'm also not going to hold my breath and be like, someone is writing a dissertation right now, so I will have my answers or I will have something. Um, so, yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm just left feeling like, yeah, this version of her ends up being like a lot of Helens we've seen before. And it doesn't really help me move the needle. All it does is move the needle of I now know what I want to see in a Helen and I really don't think that I'm going to get that. Um, and I think the only way I would get that is if I wrote it myself, which I'm not a popular author, so I don't want to take the time to do another retelling. But if I were to, oh my God, wait, no, I, Megan, we should get a ghostwriter and then we should, we should oh make the version we want to see yes. of Helen yes. of Troy. We should get a ghostwriter and do it. I am, I'm all in favor of that. So. Okay, that's my that's our new project. We're gonna get our ghostwriter and then we're gonna write the story because it's so clear that this was like my last hope. My my hopes and dreams were pinned to this one as the only adaptation from her point of view. Now that I've been thoroughly disappointed, um yeah, we should just do it ourselves, you know. DIY man. We can, we can do, do it. it. We both have so I much have free to time. write a massive novel, right? One that's well, that's that's why we get a ghostwriter. It's fine. We just we give them the outline and, and we and say just make this and... happen, you know. And it has to be longer yeah. than Margaret George's seven hundred and forty nine page book or whatever. Do you have do you have like predictions or hopes for the rest of the book, or is the first half just left you kind of flat? It's left me flat because the thing is, like I know a lot of things that we've seen try to do the thing where. They set it up and then they have the star-crossed lovers and then they try to redeem her at the end. But for me, at least, the kind of person I am and what I want to see is if you can't have a solid basis for why she leaves in the first place, there is nothing that you can possibly do to really justify it after all it, it has been said and done. I mean, I'm like, no, for me, I think I need, you need to show me upfront why this is unfair, why she is sympathetic, why she's not just some stupid, you know, I don't want to fuck my husband, so oh my God, here's 16 year old man who's young and makes me feel alive and yay. If you start with that, to me, it's only going to go downhill from there. I don't care how much conscience she suddenly gains at the end. She already left her life and her family and her duty. And it already, like, it sets her up to fail. Because it sets her up as an unsympathetic person who, when not written correctly, is just not interesting to me. So I don't really have hopes. I mean... It'll be, I'm hoping it'll be an entertaining read because even though we've basically just spent an hour shitting on Helen's character and why this book wasn't done right the way I hoped, like I, I definitely want to say it's an entertaining read still. And Margaret George clearly did a lot of research and I found that to be very enjoyable that she did so much research. It's very, it's very immersive. Yes. There's a lot of detail in there about the world it's a daily life and yeah the world that they're living in and it was 
right. beautiful to sit and read through. I didn't, I, I feel very little for Helen as a character. Right. But, but like the world she creates is amazing. And so like I, on the one hand, I want to say like to any of our listeners, like don't not read this because you are hoping for the Helen that we're hoping for. Like definitely read it because it's like, like it's very descriptive. She does her research. It's refreshing. It's nice to have like a whole world built around this person, but it's a world nonetheless, that's very well done. And you know, if you love ancient Greece, it's no reason not to get a nice window into ancient Greece, but uh, yeah, I just. Uh, one thing I did, one thing I did want to add, and it's going back to the Helen Paris relationship. When Helen chooses her husband, one of the things she says to her father is, I am not choosing any man who tells me I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. And he kind of looks a little bit upset and says, well, don't tell them that, will you? And she says, oh, no, 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 no. So we know that she doesn't like people comment. She doesn't, she doesn't like people commenting on her like outstanding beauty. It feels, and I don't know if I'm biased or if I just didn't read it carefully enough, it feels like that's one of the things that Paris comments on the most. He tells her she's beautiful all the time. And she's like, ah, oh, thank you. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's weird. No, canonically, this is something you have said you don't like. Have him praise your intelligence or your strength of character or- Anything else. <laughs> literally anything, but the fact that she's a pretty face, like, come on, please. But like. Yeah, which I mean, it tracks for for Paris because he's told right. Well, he chooses the most beautiful. It makes sense. Exactly, and he's promised the most beautiful woman, and so you know he's hunting for the most beautiful. So it makes sense for him. So, but again, they could. But don't have her simper over it when you've made a thing of it being something that triggers her. Or if you do, then put it part of the, I have no agency, and as much as I, right, and be like, okay, as much as I don't want this, you could be like, this is the God's win, like, like, or write it in a way where you can tell as the reader, it's, she's, like, put to the God's whim, so you could have her be like, he tells me I'm beautiful, and I normally don't like that, but for some weird reason I can't control... I kind of like it when he tells me I'm beautiful. Oh, that's strange because I've been running my whole life from people telling. Like, write it like that. And then we'd be like, oh, you don't know why you suddenly like it when this one person tells you you're beautiful. Oh, that might be connected to something. You know, so I'm like, why don't, why don't you write it like that? Like, ah, don't just write it and then have her be like, thanks, and then not explain it. Then it makes it seem like she's completely contradicting herself. And then you're just like, what the actual fuck? Which I, I seem to find myself doing and saying, I'm always, what in the actual fuck? You know, so I'm like, it's it, it goes back to, and I get it, it's hard. No one knows what to do with the gods. But if you take the, the stance that they are these just just benevolent beings doing whatever the fuck they want, like, don't care, I'm going to mess up these mortals' lives because they're insignificant, then just take that stance and then you can write the whole Lean book into it. around the fact that these beings don't give a shit about you as a human. Like, it would be so easy. And I don't know why people don't do that. And maybe it's because a lot of these popular authors, they aren't classicists. So they don't really care about that. They just want to tell an entertaining story. So that's what it could be for popular authors. But, like, this is, again, why I wanted to see someone like Natalie Haynes, who is a classicist and a brilliant writer. This is why I wanted to see her tackle 
Helen, because I would be very interested to see what she does with an actual narrative of yeah, Helen, same. because what we've seen in ships is brilliant. And she really gets at a lot of these feelings that I'm like, oh, I think this is something the character would feel. And then it's true. Like when she talks to, who was it? Oinoni, uh, Paris's wife uh, before, right? Like in ships, when she has that short chapter on, he comes back and he begs her for help. And he's like, don't, you know, don't you want to help me because you loved me? And she's like, no, you up and left me for a woman. And like, we know it was because of the gods and the destiny and the, and all that stuff. But like a normal woman would just be like, yeah, I'm not helping you. Bye. You know, she's not some simp who's like, oh, well, I did. I loved you once very deeply. So, okay, maybe, maybe I'll just extend my bleeding heart to help you and, and then heal you on your way. Okay. Like, you know, so I'm like, Navi just gets to the core of like what the fuck we're thinking and what a real person would feel. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, Natalie, if you can hear us, please, can, can you... Can you take Helen of Troy, the source material, and just write it? Because I feel like that would be an adaptation worth reading if I want to make Helen actually sympathetic. Because I think Natalie understands as a classist and as an author how to write something where the gods are these horrible, shitty people, and they're benevolent, and they don't care, and they force things on people, and their power is so great that that just happens, and they shape the world. And then I feel like then we would get a Helen who was like, Ugh. no but okay fine I guess I'll do it because I'm compelled to I don't know I I don't know maybe I'm just a big Natalie Haynes simp I don't know I mean we both are but I, I don't think that's unwarranted I don't really have anything to add I feel very similarly I think I'm going to enjoy it I am interested to see how it ends I'm always interested to see how it ends but in terms of like her character making a remarkable recovery in your eyes not I would be, I would be very surprised. Yeah. I would be very surprised, but I, I'm enjoying the book. I like the world that's been created. I'm enjoying a lot of the other characters. Hecuba and Prime are amazing. Andromache is really cool. I love everything that's not her. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. So join us next week for part two and we'll see if uh, we feel any better. Probably not, but we can be hopeful. Let's always be optimistic. Okay. Well, Thanks for joining us this week, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review, and you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Mm -hmm.